Romans chapter 5. Last week we did an overview of chapters 1 through 4, and so I don't want to spend uh, much time doing that again. I'm going to jump, jump straight in this morning. But look on your handout at the main point, and I appreciate Daniel's team and that rendition of Blessed Assurance, because that's really the point of which Paul is writing here. That's what Paul wants the believer to know and to feel and to sense uh, as they read Romans is assurance. And, and that's the, the fill-in there on the main point, that through the gospel and God's grace, believers can live in the presence, no matter what they face, with an assurance that one day we will share in the glory of God through our justification. It's full assurance, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're battling, no matter where you are. Paul is writing that the believer can stand assured that this faith, this, this justification through faith that is only found in Christ it leads to this assurance. Even in 1 John, he says, little children, I write these things to you so that you will know that you're saved. And here in chapter 5, Paul is going to begin to expound upon the blessings that, that come with justification by faith apart from works. And, and Paul is progressing here in, in his dialogue. And, and the, the flow, but also the argument of Paul is shifting. You see that in the style. You see that in the use of words he, from, the, from, the, from the we to the you and all that. The, the, we saw you and now he's going to say we. But, but throughout the change... Please see that righteousness still continues to be prominent throughout. Right off the bat, we have been justified. We have been declared righteous. Everything flows through our justification. Everything flows through our gift righteousness. But in, in 118 through 425, whereas Paul really kind of focused on the status of righteousness, of justification... Here Paul begins to shift towards really the ethic, what are the ethical implications? What are the day-by-day -day implications of a, of a righteousness that has been declared, that, is, that, is, that has been gifted? What are the ethical implications of that? Okay, you've been declared righteous. Okay, what now? How then shall we live, if you will? And, and whereas in 118 through 425... Uh, the ideas of faith and believe dominated that section. The words life and live dominate the section that we're going to be in now for the next coming weeks and, and maybe months as we, as we move through chapter 8. And, and think about this. In chapters 1, in 118 through 425, the, word faith, the words faith and believe, they occurred 33 times. We saw them 33 times. In chapters 5 through 8, faith and belief occur three times. And yet, and yet in, in, four, in 118 through 425, the words life and live occurred twice. In 5 through 8, chapters 5 through 8, they occur 24 times. What's Paul doing? Paul is, again, we, we've, made you, we've made you aware of the status of, how you, how you can achieve, if you will, how you're graced. Achieve may not be the best word because that leads you into things to works. How can a sinner be declared righteous through faith in Christ? Okay, now that you've got that, how then is that righteous person to live? What are the implications of having been declared righteous through faith? That makes sense? Paul is nailed down in 118 through 425. How does a sinner become righteous through faith? Now what? And, and you see it very clearly in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, he assumed that's the status. Everything is built on that. And, and what Paul is going to say in 5 through 8 is that nothing can interfere. Nothing can interrupt what God has done in your life. In, in 1 through 5 of chapter 5, he's going to say the trials can't stand in your way. In 6 through 11, sin can't stand in your way. In 12 through 21, death can't stand in your way. The law can't stand in your way, chapter 7. And what he culminates in chapter 8, at the end of this, he says, Nothing, 
I, I tell you, not angels, nor principalities, nor death, nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the point. That's the assurance that you and I can have today, believer. That's where he's leading. That's what 839, in all these things, verse 37, he says, in all these things, in all these trials, he's just said, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is doing here is through, again, through theology, through truth, Paul is, is assuring believers. And this is what he's assuring them. You see it on your handout. What God has done through our justification, he will carry to a triumphant conclusion of glorification. Again, that, that's where he's building. Chapter 8 is full of this. Even in verse 30, he says, To those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. In the Greek, there's a, there's a sequence there, an unbreakable chain. What God has begun, he will complete. Be assured of that, believer. And, and assurance and hope are what bracket everything that we read here, really in chapters 5 through 8, but specifically our text this morning. The assurance of our hope through the gospel. A hope that only God's power can bring, can usher in, only through us allowing the gospel and who we are through the gospel to overwhelm our hearts and minds. Even what we saw in 1 Peter 1, 1.5, he says, you are being, you are protected by the power of God. Think about that. What keeps you this morning? The power of God. You are protected by the power of God, believer. Assurance. My, my hope over the next few weeks is that those, of a, that those of us who are believers would walk out of here with an with a overwhelming sense of assurance of who God is who, and who you are in Christ. And if you're here doubting that, if you're here not a believer, I, I would pray that you would walk out of here over the next few weeks being assured that only Jesus Christ offers that assurance. The no, no one else offers that assurance. No one else, as we saw in Philippians 2, was willing to humble himself to the point of death to be the offering that he himself required of his people. We saw that. The beauty of the gospel is that God get offered his own offering in your place. The offering that he demanded of you, he offered for you. That's astounding. But, but the, the implication is that is you ought to be assured. There ought to be no wondering about my... You don't need to wonder, is my offering enough? Because it wasn't your offering. God was totally satisfied in Christ, the offering that he made. And I pray that this assurance would overwhelm us this morning. That, that we would see why theology matters. Real life application in the midst of everything that we go through. Going back to this fact. I, through faith in Christ, I have been justified. I have been acquitted of all my sins. I stand in a position of being declared righteous through faith. In Christ, that's why Paul could be confident that the gospel, uh, in verse 15, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. For as it, and then he goes on to say the righteous, again, shall live by faith. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believed. Assurance. Assurance. Confidence in the gospel. And, and the challenge is that, again, you and I, believer, we live currently with this tension. And here's the tension. It's really an already not yet tension. You have been transferred to the people of God through faith. Again, we saw it in Colossians 1. He has rescued you from the reign of darkness and transferred you into his kingdom of light. You, are, you have been declared righteous. And yet... The power of sin and its effects still loom large. Sin is still tempting. Sin may be 
defeating some of us in here this morning. As a matter of it may be defeating some of us. We're still tempted to sin. We've fallen into sin. We suffer from sin. We, we die. All that experience by believers that the gospel say have been declared righteous, have been justified. How do we respond? That's the challenge. Because what Paul is writing is that hopefully we would respond in hope. Hopefully we would respond with the assurance that only the gospel provides. Hopefully we'll go back to the gospel and be assured of our salvation through the work of Christ, not through the work of ourselves. And, and Paul would deal with this in, again in chapter 6. Okay, well if we're saved and we're saved no matter what, do we just live how we want to live? By no means. That's not the right conclusion when it comes to grace. God's grace has given us the freedom, but also the power to, to defeat sin and thwart sin, not indulge in sin and just get away with it. And Paul is arguing this in Romans, and he's helping us to believe it. Again, this is huge, and, and, and you see it on your handout. Trying to, I don't want to overly simplify things, but I want you to see sort of the progression of the argument and so you see the unity of the book of, the Ro of Romans. In, in 1 through 4, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul is showing that God has provided for the beginning of the Christian life. That's our justification. God has made a way for you to enter into the people of God. That's your justification. God made a way for that in Christ. That's the gospel. Though, though we were sinners, though all have sinned and fall short, God, being rich in mercy, has made a way for your sin to be rightly forgiven. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul continues this argument showing that God has provided a way for the day-to-dayness of the Christian life. That's your sanctification. And again, not that these chapters are that rigid. I don't want you to say he doesn't talk about it in chapter 8, but in general. Day-to-dayness. How are we to live in a day-to-day -day battle? And we'll see it specifically in chapter 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you may be its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but... Present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead of your members as instruments of righteousness of God. How are you and I, believers, to live every day by presenting ourselves as an offering to God? By taking these hands and these feet and the life that you've been given, whatever your abilities are, whatever your giftings are, whatever your passions are, and presenting them to God as an offering. Using them for His glory. Using them to further His kingdom. That's how we're to live, not to run back to sin. That, that's the point Paul is going to make. And, and in the midst of our battle with sin, in the midst of it, be assured of the gospel. When, when, you, when, you, when you defeat sin, praise God. When you fall short, repent, get back up, and praise God. When others in, around in his body do that, praise with them. When others fall short, help them to get back up and move on and praise God. Reminding ourselves every single day of the assurance. And what Paul is going to say, and you see it in your handout, is that our justification, our salvation affects our lives now. Not just eternity. It ought to affect our life now. New lives given to the glory of God. And, and that's what Paul begins to build on in chapter 5. Therefore, you see that word again in the first point there on your handout. Under the, under the idea of assurance. How is Paul going to make this argument that the believer walks out of here assured? By showing that he does, first of all, he says you have peace with God. Through the power of the gospel, you, believer, have peace with God. And right off the bat, we see that word, therefore. And again, that points back to what we saw earlier, specifically, that now the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as to what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Even 4.24, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. And Paul connects everything he says here to that. Our sure justification. Therefore, 
Everything you see it on your handout, everything that Paul puts forth here is built on, is, is about our assurance. It is built on our justification. It's built on going back to the gospel. Allow your assurance to be rooted in the gospel, not in you. Listen, on your best day, your assurance is rooted in the gospel. On your worst day, your assurance is rooted in the gospel. The, the week that you have your devotions every day that week, listen to me, your assurance is rooted in the gospel. On the week that you don't spend any time with God, listen to me, your assurance is rooted in the gospel. You have peace with God through your justification. Decisive, one-time act declared the judge gavel hits the, hits the bottom, hits the little pad there and says, not guilty. How? Through faith. Grasp the grace. That's what Paul is saying here. You have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this word peace, it, it, we, we've really adulterated the meaning of that and, and hijacked the meaning of that and made it something it's not necessarily in the, in the Bible. And so I want to, you see that on your handout, peace has a negative and a positive meaning here. When it says you have peace with God negatively, you see it on your handout. Negatively, it's viewed as the lack or absence of hostilities. Again, this is what uh, David in, in Paul quoted in Abraham, I mean in Abraham, in Romans 4, 7, he quoted David and he said, Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will not take into account. That's, that's the peace. That's the negative there. You, again, your sins have been, have not, or will not be counted against you through faith in Christ. Positively, it's the disposition of the believer because of that. It's the disposition of the believer who knows that God is for them, not against them. A disposition. And again, an illustration, I've used this before, but it sticks in my head, and forgive me, I'm a sports guy, and forgive me, I know some of you hate sports analogies, but, um, you know, we, we used to love football in our house before Florida State became so terrible, now it's not fun to watch those games anymore, but when they would play a team, you know, in the midst of a hard-fought, close battle, there's a lot of stress, right? A lot of stress. There, rumors are there may be yelling at the TV in our family. I don't, I don't believe that. Don't believe everything you hear. But imagine this. In our day and age now, you know, there will be times, and, and this was true with the Masters. I, I, the Masters had to be played early this year, for instance, and, and, and I can use that as an illustration. I taped it. Long before I saw the ending of the Masters, the Masters was over. A lot of y'all knew the ending of the Masters before I knew the ending of the Masters. And I knew that was going to be the case. And so you know what I did? I put my phone in my bathroom. Because they didn't want anybody texting me, telling me the end. Okay? Same, same with the U.S. Open this past, a couple weeks ago. I watched it delayed. Again, and we were on our way home from something, and I called my dad to check in on something. And he started to say, can you believe how? I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Do not tell me how the U.S. Open ended, son. I'm going to go home and watch it. Now, now Brooks Koepka blew a six-shot lead over the course of two or three holes, and it got real stressful. But imagine if I knew, imagine this, here's the difference. Imagine if I knew while I was watching that that Brooks Koepka won. Imagine if I knew Tiger Woods coming up those last couple holes and needing two pars, and imagine if I knew that he had won. It's not stressful anymore, right? Because I know the outcome. In a roundabout way, that's kind of what Paul is trying to do here to encourage believers that, listen, no matter what you encounter, no matter how it looks, no matter what you feel like, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's telling you how the end happens. No matter what, you are at peace with God. 
God's not doing it because he's mad at you. He's not doing it because he's moody. He's not doing it to get back at you. He's not doing it because he's waiting up there to you to fail so he can bop you on the head. You are at peace with God. Does he discipline those whom he loves? Hebrews 12 says he does. But you're at peace with God. It doesn't matter what you're facing. That ought to be the disposition as a believer. If we, if, we, if we internalize the gospel and really, really grasp the gospel, that becomes the disposition of the believer, no matter what we face, peace with God. Way beyond feelings. You have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. You have been reconciled through faith in the blood of Christ. And that's an amazing piece. Again, that's why David said, Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will not take into account. Blessed is the man who the wrath of God has fallen on Christ instead of themselves for their sin. Blessed. And this peace only comes through Christ. It only comes through justification through faith. God is the only one who could offer the once and for all sin-atoning, wrath-averting sacrifice that was sufficient for our sin. And you see it on your handout. Through faith in Christ, we stand in a new and permanent status. Permanent. And that ought to have implications on our lives, no matter what we face. There is no peace with God outside of the gospel. I don't care how much you give, how much you read the Bible, what you do. I don't care. There is no peace with God that can be achieved outside of faith in Christ. And yet, if that's you, there ought to be a disposition about us that's different. There ought to be, as Paul said, this fragrant aroma about our lives when we deal. Because we're not immune to every, we're not immune to the things of this world. We're not immune to, to sin and it affects but there's a peace with God. And, and all throughout this, you can write these down. We won't look at them, but 5.11 speaks to this. 5.21 speaks to this. 6.23 speaks to this. 7.25 speaks to this. 8.39, all speak to peace with God. And the fact that there is no peace with God outside of, G, outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And you see it on your hand out there. Believers live. The disposition is this. We live with, in peace with God through faith in the completed and all-sufficient justifying work of Christ. That's the point. It's completed and it was totally sufficient. If you don't believe that, go to Hebrews 7 through 10 and read it over and over and over. That's the whole argument of Hebrews 7 through 10. The once and for all completed, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. There is no longer enmity between the believer in Jesus Christ and God do your sin. Hold on to that. Grasp that. Preach that to yourself every single day. I am not an enemy of God because of the, my faith in Jesus Christ. And allow that blessed assurance to overwhelm you. Not, but not only peace with God, verse 1. Look at verses 2 and verse 5. We're going to deal with 3 and 4 last. Because if we'll get two and five and one, three and four make a whole lot more sense. Verse two, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of glory of God. Circle that word exult because we're going to see it in chapter three. I don't think any of us have any problems exalting in grace. But he's going to have us exult in something else in a minute that may be a little more challenging. Skip down to verse five. And hope, because you see that word hope, we hope in the glory of God. Go to verse 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The, the second source of our assurance is hope. We can live with confident hope that one day we will experience the fullness of everything that God has promised us. One day. One day, believer, you will experience the fullness of all the promises. It's interesting, go to Hebrews 11, not, don't go there now, but go read that. There's a statement that shows up multiple times in Hebrews 11, and it says, they did not receive what was promised. One day, in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, you know what they're going to receive? Everything that was promised. 
It's, if you, go to, you can go to Revelation 6 and see the same thing. You see, this, you see John sees this picture of these martyred saints. And you know what they're asking God? When are you going to avenge those that killed me? You know what God says? Just wait. I, I will. I will. In, in Habakkuk 2, you can go to Habakkuk 2. And I love this statement. It says, though the vision tarries, wait for it. While we wait, here's what the gospel offers, hope, assurance that we will get everything that he's promised. And what he starts dealing with here is the truth that, again, why, we, why we're going over this before three and four is because look at your handout, everything, even trials, ultimately lead back to and are interpreted through hope in the gospel. If we do not interpret everything in our lives through the hope we have in the gospel, we're going to go off kilter real quick. If you start trying to interpret God based on your circumstances, you're going to get a false idea of who God is. But if you interpret your circumstances through who God is and his promises in the gospel, it changes how you look at those problems. You've got to allow this hope to infiltrate and to filter everything that you face in life. The state of grace that we live, that we dwell, grasp that. No matter what we face, peace. And again, he sets this in contrast to law. He sets it in contrast to self and things that you think that you can generate. And you see it on your handout. Not only is our peace through Christ, but look at this. Our access to God's grace is through Christ. He says that through whom we have also obtained our introduction. That word can also be interpreted access. Think about the picture. If I know somebody that you don't know, and I take you up, and, I, and, and you, let's say you're, you're looking for a job or something, let's say, and I know somebody who's got a job that's, that's open, and I take you up, and I introduce you to that person. You know what I've done? I've given you access to that person that you did not have right before I introduced you, right? That makes sense? God has given us access. He's introduced us through Christ to his grace. Only through faith. Hebrews says, you know how you and I can approach God confidently? Because we know the Son. You know why kids run and run freely, come in our house and freely eat our food and freely eat our drinks and eat our drinks, drink our drinks and play in our pool and, and you know, why we find Nerf darts all over our house all the time? Because they know my son and my daughter. They have access into my house because of a relationship with my child. You and I have access to God through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. No other way. And guess what? Those kids, they just freely eat. Like they used to ask. It's like, now they don't need to ask no more. They freely eat. Because why? I know Bradley. I know Sarah Grace. But, but that's the picture, and when I see that, I'm reminded of Hebrews, and it says, boldly approach the throne of God. Even that is crazy. Unless you're confident that your sins have been dealt with, you will not boldly approach God's throne. And that's what Paul is offering us. And Paul says, exult in this truth. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Again, it fueled with hope. The, the word exult can also be translated boast. Interesting. Paul has said time and time again, don't boast. He says it in 1 Corinthians as well. Believer, be careful what you boast in. You know what you and I are to boast in? God. You know what we're to boast in? The grace of God. You know what we're to boast in? A hope that surpasses all understanding and circumstances. Imagine what our neighbors, co-workers, imagine that kind of impact. Imagine, imagine what the influence that would be. This is, again, you see there on your handout, the word here for exalt means that we have confidence in God. Confidence in God. And, and, and Hebrews 11.1 1 says that's the very essence of faith. Faith, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or confidence of things not yet seen that ought to be the disposition of you and i believer a confident assurance not in self not in circumstances but in god 
By the way, a God who is able to raise the dead. So no matter how bleak it looks in your life, be confident in God. Hope. And again, this hope, we'll see it. Look at verse 5. This hope does not disappoint. This is a huge point of Paul that he's going to deal with in Romans 9. He's going to deal with very confidently and very specifically in Romans 10. So we won't get in there. We'll wait. But again, those who trust in God will not be disappointed. He says it over and over and over again. How can he say that? Because his hope was in God. Again, the better we know God, the better we know the promises, the better we know the Old Testament and his faithfulness that he is a 100% track record of being faithful, the better we'll stand today. And our assurance, again, our assurance offers this hope. I mean, again, it's 2 Corinthians 1.20, for as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they were yes. Paul's going to deal with this in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but offered him up freely for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? The point is this, God has done the hard thing. Right? Why would he not do the easy thing? Why? The answer is he wouldn't. He wouldn't not do the easy thing. He's for you, not against you, believer. Live with this blessed assurance, this confidence to face any trial. To even exult, as we're going to see in trials. But not in the flesh, in the gospel. And you see it on your handout, Christ is our foundation. Christ as our foundation will prove secure no matter the test. And the Holy Spirit has been given to attest to this. We, he has poured it out in our hearts. Again, not, not just a trickle of grace, abundant grace. He has poured it out. Extravagance, that word means, extravagant grace. Other places it said that God has lavished His grace upon us. Again, not only at salvation, but day to day. A summary picture of all that God has done because the love of God has been poured out. God has done what He's promised to do in the Old Testament in the giving of the Spirit. And, and Paul's point, and again, fueling hope is this. You see it on the handout. God's love for us is active. Giving to us and taking possession of us. It's active. It's interesting. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, for, for the love of Christ controls us having concluded this that one died for there, for all therefore all died what controlled everything about paul's life the gospel god's love for him it could literally controlled him another word there is compelled what motivated him to do what he did and live the way he lived the love of christ confidence in the gospel the, the reality for some of us, and, and not to hit close to home, but, 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 but to put it out there for you, we come up with all kinds of excuses. Listen, the number one issue in my life and your life is confidence in the gospel. The number one need for you and I is a greater faith, a deeper, more sure faith. We need to be asking what the, the father in Mark 9 said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I remember when we went through the Truth Project, one of the early questions they asked you is, how would your life be different if you really believed what you say you really believe? And again, th this is going back and digging deeper and deeper and deeper in the gospel. The gospel. We don't get saved by the gospel and move on. We need to allow the gospel to, to wash over us. To really understand the love of God. That's what Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I pray that you, that you would understand one thing. The height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That, that, that God was able to do far more exceedingly beyond everything you ask or think. Imagine that kind of confidence in God. That no matter what you ask Him, He's greater. That you will never, ever ask him something that he can't do nor would want to do if it's in line with his will. And that's very different than, than us. See, I love my kids, but, but I also love Chris. Okay? And sometimes they ask me to do something that I can do. 
I'm just a selfish dad sometimes and don't want to do it. Right? You can, you can act like y'all are holy and pious and you're like, I don't know what he's talking about. I do everything my kids want me to do. Sometimes, though, my kids ask me to do something that I want to do. We just don't have the means to do it. Like my daughter, you can ask her any day, any time, hey, what do you want to do today? I want to go to Disney. It ain't happening. For a lot of reasons. That gets into the, I just don't want to. I don't care it costs so much money. I don't want to go to Orlando. See, but here's the beauty. Here's the confidence. And, you know, that creates, a, that creates a, an issue in our kids. And they, they, like, what's dad up to? How's dad feeling today? Is today a good day to ask dad? You know, sometimes. It, 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 what it does, unfortunately, is sometimes it gives them a lack of confidence. Because let's be honest, we're moody. I may, not, I may be the only one that battles with that, but I can be moody. Listen to me, here's the point. Here's what Paul is saying. God's never moody. He's always 100% consistent. And he's always able to do whatever he wants to do. Right? If it's according to his will, he'll want to do it. And he'll be able to do it. Doesn't mean we always get the yes. Don't hear me saying that. That's a lie. If it's according to his will, he'll want to do it. And he'll always have the means to do it. And like even with our kids, sometimes we have to tell them no because we love them. Sometimes God, sometimes, you know, you, 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 an illustration, how many of you fathers who son ask him for a stick or give him a snake or whatever? The problem is this, in my sin, sometimes I ask for a snake and I don't know why I'm asking for a snake. And so a good father would not give me a snake. Sometimes I think I'm asking for bread and I'm really asking for a stone. And in those moments, I've got to go back to the confidence that the gospel gives me that God loves me. That God is doing what is good for me no matter what. And believers are to exalt. What he's saying is exalt in this. The, that, the, the, that you presently, the word there is presently stand in the love of God. You stand in the love of God. He loves you. Be confident that he loves you. No matter what you face, be assured that he loves you. Not based on your efforts, not based on your lack of struggles, but based on grace through faith in the gospel. He loves you. So again, he, the gospel offers us peace, the gospel offers us hope, but look at what it also says. Our assurance, our assurance allows us to rejoice. Number three is rejoice even in sufferings. And you see how those build on each other. And, and here's the word. Note this. The same word, the, the same word exalt, that we exalt in the gospel is, and the love of God is the same word that Paul says we also exalt in our trials. Same word. This is Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you, brothers, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but to what? Suffer. Same grace. Paul talks about it in Philippians 3 as well. I pray that you'd rejoice not only in the resurrection, but you'd rejoice in trials. And only the hope of the gospel. And not only this, look, but we exult in our tribulations. That is crazy. Unless the gospel is real. Knowing that tribulation, listen, brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. You see that word again, hope. What's God's goal in trials? What's he doing in trials to produce hope? Sometimes, sometimes we'll cut to the chase here. Sometimes it's to pry the world out of my hand so he can give me himself. Sometimes it's to pry the world out of my hand so that he'll fill it with hope. Because you know what? First Timothy says, the things of this world, you know what they battle with us? The things of this world, they battle with our hope. He says, teach those who are rich in this world and rich with treasures in this world not to do what? Put their hope in the things of this world. God wants to be our hope. He wants to be, again, our boast. He want, he's not going to compete with you for the glory. He gets the glory. 
And again, you see it right now, the same boasting, this is the, the, the dumbfounding idea here. The same, that, that just, it, it surpasses understanding. The same boasting that we express regarding the love for God is the same boasting that we express toward trials. Same boasting applies to trials. You and I, believer, are not immune to struggles. The lives in this room prove that we are not immune to struggles. And what Satan wants us to do is to doubt God's love, to doubt his promises, to doubt his assurance. And that is what Paul is saying. Don't ever do that. God is for you, not against you. Nothing can separate you, believer, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the reality. Satan wants to use sufferings to cause us to doubt. The word is doubt, God's love and blessing. And, And this tactic, for some reason, it works. It does work. When we go through a trial, oftentimes the first thing we doubt is God's love. And that's, that's, part, of, that's part of the fact of the already not, net, not yetness of our salvation. But it also can be a, 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 like a little warning light on the dashboard of our lives that says maybe, maybe we're not comprehending the gospel as much as we should. Maybe we need to plumb the depths of the gospel more deeply. Maybe we're not as mature as we think we are. Maybe. And what Paul says here in verse 3 is this, that in verse 3 and 4, not only do our sufferings and trials not overthrow the reality of God's love and blessings, they actually are the source of blessings. Not only do they not destroy our hope, they give us hope. And, And again, listen, Again, it's God's grace that does this. Listen to this astounding passage. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God. So what is Paul telling them? He's helping them to understand the grace of God that has been given to the churches in Macedonia. Listen to this. That in a great ordeal of affliction, a great or- they're not sitting by the beach with their feet up, they're not soaking it in. The, they're living in the lap of luxury. In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. Okay, those are not three words that we usually connect. Affliction, joy, and poverty. Listen to what happens. Overflowed in liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability... They gave of their own accord, begging, begging us with much favor, with the urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. But listen, and this not as we had expected, hello, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. What, where, did, where did all that, where was all that fueled? The grace of God. Why could they give abundantly in poverty? Why could they have joy in affliction? Why? Because their brothers and sisters were hurting. They had the means to do it, and so they did it. But, but again, it, uh, all of that flowed from the grace of God. That's the main idea in that passage. That's the main idea Paul is talking about here, the grace of God. Until we understand the gospel. That, that's the one thing that will affect our, our marriages, our parenting, our work ethic, our students in school, students in relationship to other boys and girls, students in dating, music, movies, all this other stuff is influenced by the gospel. Problem is you and I want to go to the stuff and bypass the gospel. The greatest thing we could do would be to contemplate the gospel. To contemplate who you are in the gospel. To contemplate the grace of God. Again, exult. Three times it shows up in this this passage. Another in 5.11. Not only this, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have received reconciliation. Everything was fueled by the gospel. And what Paul is getting at is a hard truth. You see it in your hand now. We can rejoice no matter the source of the trial because we are assured that God is accomplishing something through it. We exult in the trials. And he tells us what, we're, what he's accomplishing. Look, look what he says. You see it in your hand now. God uses or authors tribulations, and I put that there on reason, for reason, 
Sometimes God uses our trials. Sometimes God authors our trials. You can go to Genesis 50, 20. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Doesn't matter. No matter what the trial, no matter what the source, God is using it to bring about perseverance. The word is perseverance. The word perseverance means endurance. He's making our faith stronger. He, he's, he's creating in a, in a, a people who are circumstance-proof. He's burning off all the impurities. He's burning off all the dross that we would be pure gold. But God uses that trial that creates perseverance to bring about proven character in us. Not just any character, proven character. Listen, here's the point. Suppose, 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 uh, whatever your name is, Bill. Suppose Bill and I are, don't know each other. And we're, huh? We don't know each other very well. We go way back. Sorry. This is the joy of, of ADD. I do that with my kids sometimes. They're like, yeah, you come over here, please, please. I just, too much going on. Suppose we didn't know each other. And suppose, suppose we're in the army and the, and the commanding officer says, hey, I want y'all to sit in a foxhole. I want you to put your life in my hands and I'm going to put my life in your hands. We've never met. Is that going to be awkward? That's going to be awkward. But, but suppose, like Bill and I do, we go way back and we know each other intimately, and, and we've been in 15 foxholes. And every time, Bill has proven to be faithful. Guess what's going to happen on that 16th time? I'm going to trust him? I ask, why? Because he has what? He has proven character. He has a character that has been shown to be trustworthy. I know that I can trust Bill. Listen, if your faith has never been tested, I'm not sure it can be trusted. That's the point. Proven character, not just character. Not just going around telling people you're faithful. I'm talking about the world falling apart around you and you remain faithful. That's a person I want to get in a foxhole with. Proven character. And we can exult in trials because God is proving our character. But not only that, God uses the proven character to bring about hope. Rid us of these false things that we hope in so that my hope is only in the gospel. And that's what we don't have time to look at. It's 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has a thorn and he begs. He's been given this surpassing, surpassing awesome vision. And to keep him humble, a messenger of Satan, God gave them a, a, a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. Three times Paul says, take this away. And here's what God's answer was. No. Why? So that Paul would understand that God's grace was sufficient in strength and weakness. So that, God would, so that Paul would boast in Christ and not himself. That might be the, the why in some of our lives. So that we would know that God's grace was sufficient. Because right now we think that we're sufficient. And that's the hand, you see that, that's the fill-in. God uses everything in our lives to bring believers to the conclusion that he and his grace are sufficient. Same thing you see in James 1. Hope, so that our hope would be in him. Listen to me, real quick, application. Blessed assurance. Paul invites believers to grasp this, what they have in Christ, so that they can live lives of joyful thanksgiving. All throughout this section, exult. I pray that we would be a people that that's our disposition. It doesn't mean happy about suffering. It doesn't mean happy about the loss of loved ones. It doesn't mean that we're happy to go through trials. It does mean that we don't move from our hope. It does mean that we don't doubt God's love for us. It means we persevere in that. You, you only, and you only experience this. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace in a time of need. Listen, you only experience this through intimacy. You don't experience this, this peace and this hope and this ability to rejoice in a long-distance relationship with God. You only experience it through intimacy. 
You only experience it as Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of God richly dwell within you. You, you will not experience this coming to church on Sunday and disregarding the Bible the rest of the week. You won't experience this just getting something emailed to you every now and then, reading it quickly and moving on to bigger and better things. The only way you'll experience this is by drawing near to the one who authored the gospel. The only way we'll experience as a body is through a bunch of people in here, through everyone in here, drawing near. Because if a bunch of us don't, here's what's going to, here's, it's going to be chaos in here. Because all it takes, listen, in your home, Hudson's, how many kids does it take to mess up the whole, whole dynamic in your home? How many kids have to act up? It just takes one. One is off, one is out of step. All it takes is one. It's the same in your house. The gospel unites, and that's why I read Philippians 2. I, I encourage you, go back to the gospel, be of the same mind and the same hope and the same love. Because all it takes is one or two of us to get out of step and do our own thing, and it throws everything off kilter. All it takes is one spouse to be selfish, and everything goes awry. And I pray that we would be, we would be a people that, that goes through things together and that helps each other individually and corporately exult in God no matter what. That, that our exaltation would be in God. That we help each other see God. And my number one goal here, my number one goal, and it's... It's not to, it's, it, look, it's not necessarily to fill this place up. Those are secondary. Those will have, you know, we'll grow if this happens. My number one goal is real simple, that we would love God's glory more than anything else. That we would be a people that love God's glory more than anything else. People will be attracted to that. And even if, even if we don't grow numerically, if we would grow in a maturity. See, there's lots of ways you can grow a church. There's lots of gimmicks that we could do in here to get a bunch of people in here, and you never grow mature. And mature. My job is to help you grow in a maturity, spiritual maturity. That you would not be, again, like children, Ephesians 4, tossed around by every wind and wave and trickery of doctrine, that you'd be staying firm. But again, when we exult in the glory of God more than anything else, listen to me, no matter what comes, God will be glorified in it. 